Well, good evening. I think we're still waiting a couple of classes, but we'll go ahead and get started here. Welcome to Wednesday evening chapel. Kind of threw me off. We didn't have chapel last night. But uh, trust that you're having a good week so far. We're privileged uh, this evening to have a pastor, a visiting pastor with us um, from Tower Community Fellowship in Aurora. And that's Pastor uh, Russ Martin and his wife. Let's welcome him. Thank you. Thank you for coming tonight. He's going to minister the word. Let us all stand as we worship. We, we serve a great God. Amen. Let us worship in song. You may be seated. Thank you, Chaplain. Good evening. What a great privilege to be with you. I was telling Chaplain for, uh, for 20 years before I moved here to Colorado, it was my privilege to, uh, to teach for the Bible College from a distance. Extension classes for those years, uh, 10 years in Hawaii, 10 years in Southern California, mostly uh, military in Hawaii, a lot of the Samoan community who could not come to be where you are, who longed to be where you are but we're trying to do it from that distance. And so count it a privilege that God has you where you are uh, tonight and that you can share in uh, your education here in this great place. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love. In two weeks, we'll begin the Lenten season, Ash Wednesday, just two weeks away. And so as I was thinking and praying about tonight, uh, I was drawn to this idea of how do we spread this love of God, the spirit that he has given to us, and uh, John has just a masterful chapter that I want us to read from tonight, the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. Let's bow and pray as we come to the Word. Father, we thank you tonight for the privilege of studying your Word, of being filled with your Spirit, of knowing your truth, and enjoying your Spirit. May we tonight, in the time that we have, focus on your truth and what it means to lead others to this love. How do we best share that love with those around us, those we minister to now, and those we will minister to in the future? Guide us into that truth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. John's Gospel is very different from the synoptics in that, you know, the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they come to the, uh, the resurrection account of Jesus, as they come to the Passion Week, deal a great deal with the facts, deal with the issues that happened in Jesus' life. John focuses through people, and in no place better than this 20th chapter, where he gives his own story, the story of Mary Magdalene, and the story of Thomas. And bringing those three together gives us a view of how we share uh, this love of God. John, Mary, and Thomas all arrived at their assurance of Jesus' resurrection by a particular process. And as we look at that process, it may represent you. It may represent you know, you might come by John's perspective. You might have that hungering heart of Mary. You might have that kind of will that uh, wrestles with the Lord like Thomas did. But more likely, we're all kind of a, a weaving of those three together. And the people you share with now in ministry, the people you will share with in the future in ministry, will be of those personality types. How do we draw these people to the Lord? How do we express the truth of God to them? I want us to begin with John's approach. Starting at verse 3, 
Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I think as John comes to his awareness of the resurrection, it is with a very logical mind. We know John from his connection with the 12 disciples in that inner circle of three with Peter and his brother James as they were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration at the raising of Jairus' daughter several times when Jesus is training that inner circle. Uh, John, of course, one of the sons of Zebedee, a fisherman by trade. And yet, something about their family connections allowed John to be the one that was in the Sanhedrin during the trial of Jesus, the one who had that connection, who was able to come to the cross with confidence as the other disciples were off hiding someplace. What better nickname could you have than the disciple Jesus loved? John, what a, a marvelous uh, disciple of Christ. And the church's recollection of John was that he was a very competent intellectual, quite at ease with the Greek philosophers, with the prophets of Israel, knowing the uh, background of the prophecy. The symbol, the ancient symbol for St. John was a soaring eagle. They said he had the, the eye of a, of a scientist for detail, and yet soared high in this wonderful spirit, uh, the presence of God. A rare combination. And we're told in verse 8 that John looked at the contents of the deserted tomb and believed. It was our privilege this last year, almost, uh, well, let's see, 10 months ago, to take our first trip to the Holy Land. And as we were in the garden tomb, as we were preparing for a wonderful communion there, one by one, we were able to go inside the tomb and to visualize what John would have seen as he went into that tomb, as his eyes got accustomed to the semi-darkness, to see the linen burial cloths there and to recognize what he saw as he came that day with Peter. Detail was very important to John. In their day, of course, Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus, had wrapped Jesus' body as they would prepare it for burial, wrapped the head separately, and they would encase the body with strips of linen, round and round and round. And so when John looks in, he sees the wound cloth still there, but the body gone. He reasons, this is not what we had, you know, a matter of a few weeks before with Lazarus. This is not a resuscitation, although that would have been marvelous enough. John was there. He, he took part in the unwrapping of Lazarus. He, he knew what that pile of grave clothes looked like when they were done unwrapping that body. And yet here, that cocoon is still there, just flattened out. This is change. This is matter into energy. This is a new transformation. And John sees it and realizes something big has happened here. This is not someone who has been just brought back to life and someone came and unwound the grave cloths. This was a change. In these verses, verse 5, 6, and 8, if you'll follow through there, three different words for the word to see in the Greek. The first word 
in, in verse 5, it says, John looked. It was the word they would use for glancing at something, to look very quickly. In verse 6, it says, Peter saw. That's the word they would use for staring intently at something. And then in verse 8, we see the word saw once again in the NIV, which I read from. But in the Greek, it is to see into. It is to perceive. And so he glanced, first of all. Peter stared, but then John saw, perceived what he saw, and believed because of what he saw. His inquiring mind needed to see resurrection has happened. They still didn't understand. It says in parentheses there in verse 9 that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And yet he realized something amazing has happened here. Now John knew the Greek theory of immortality, how the soul would leave the body at death and the body then would return to dust. But here is bodily resurrection. Something brand new to their concept of new life. It says Jesus is the firstborn among many. We too will have this new body. And the only evidence we have for that is what we see in Jesus. What we will be like. We know Mary mistook him for the gardener. We'll read that in just a few minutes. We know that Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus thought he was just a companion walking along the way with them. They saw him on the beach and didn't recognize at first who it was. And yet he also vanished from their sight and appeared between uh, through the wall and, and all kinds of times. He ate fish with them on the beach. A, a brand new body, a new dimension, and yet something that John was just beginning to scratch the surface of, and yet in seeing the evidence, believed. Have you read Strobel's book, The Case for Christ? This is the kind of evidence John was looking for. Look into the detail. Study it. Prove it. Reason together what resurrection is all about. And so John comes from this sense of the, the logical mind. We too will be changed. Many eyewitnesses, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 500, most of them still alive, go talk to them. All kinds of evidence that surrounded them. So we have this approach of the logical mind. Well, let's go on to Mary Magdalene. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. If John came from the inside of, uh, of his intellect, Mary comes from this hunger in her heart. She comes needing to have her grief dealt with. John intellectually understood what was there and believed. But we see Mary struck deeply in her emotions. She's not seeking John's logical answer. She knows the person who had turned her life around is gone. She is struck deeply in her heart and needs to hear from God. 
among the last at the cross, among the first at the tomb, her judgment was someone had stolen the body. In her grief, she thought Jesus was the gardener until he speaks her name. And so John, you know, has his mind in gear, but Mary is leading with her heart. You will deal with people who want to reason about the gospel and discuss those things, and we have wonderful theological discussions with them about who Christ is. And others who don't really want to talk about all that stuff, they just need to know that God cares. And Mary kind of represents those people to us who lead with their heart. We may shrug off the resurrection until he speaks our name. For, for millions of people, it's just empty religious talk until Jesus speaks their name. Then it takes on meaning. Then it takes on flesh and blood and reality for them. Because he is their Savior. He is their Lord. Mary cries out, teacher. She realizes who he is. And it's our privilege in ministry to introduce people to Jesus. To take the veil back and say, he's speaking your name. Will you accept it? Will you realize who he is? I don't want to separate the two traits because I think John masterfully, with the leadership of the Holy Spirit, has put these three personalities together. That we might see the mind that seeks after God, the heart that seeks after God, and then the will that must accept what we find. And I think he has them in this order. You know, put your head in gear and think about what's happening, but make sure you respond then in your emotions as well. The Bible says we're to have the mind of Christ, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, but head knowledge is not enough. Classroom stuff isn't enough. We must connect with the very Spirit of God. And that's what Mary is aware of here. Intellectual acceptance of the resurrection for John was enough, but the emotional experience of the risen Christ is what we give to people as well. Well, you know how the story goes. Jesus appears, first of all, to the disciples minus Thomas. And then, since Thomas says he won't believe unless he sees it for himself, let's read from verse 24. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. When the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, he declared, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. We have the intellectual approach of John. We have the heart of Mary. But we must have the conquered will that Thomas finally comes to. Now, the twin, Didymus, was his original nickname, but we all know which nickname stuck. <laughs> Doubting Thomas, because it seems that every time Thomas appears in Scripture, this account of doubt seems to go beyond his intellect to his will. His best friends in the world, who he had been with day and night for three years, tell him Jesus has appeared. He says, I won't believe it until I see it with my own eyes. He's wrestling with this will, and we see it every time we encounter Thomas in Scripture. Jesus is talking about heaven in John 14. And Thomas says, how will we know the way? Give us some more detail. Let us know what's happening. 
It seems to be rooted in his disposition to stubborn pessimism. And more and more, as our age moves on, we're going to encounter more of this type of person. Stubbornly pessimistic about the truth of God's word. And we can talk with them about the intellectual truth of the word. We can inspire them about the hungry heart. But they're still battling with this intense, intense pessimism, pessimism that just is all through our society. Always expecting the worst. Even when Thomas is at his best, he's expecting the worst. In John chapter 11, when Jesus has delayed going to Lazarus' tomb, because the danger that is there, Thomas thinks, and Jesus says, no, we must go now. And they said, Jesus, there's a price on your head. You'll be in great danger. Well, we're going. And so what does Thomas say? All right, let's go and die with him. <laughs> you know, it just, even in the positive, it's all negative. We're going to die. We might as well go and die with Jesus. And yet here, in the upper room, in the second appearance, we see Thomas finally fighting through that. And I think, as John puts chapter 20 together, the order of this is crucial for us. The head and the heart might be in agreement, but still there's this necessity of the conquered will. Will I believe my intellect? Will I trust my heart? Will I yield to God? That's what all of our teaching about sanctification is about, everything about yielding everything to God. So before you listen to your heart, make sure your head's functioning, but neither head nor heart can finally convince us. Whatever caused Thomas doubting, the cure lay in his surrender to Jesus. The key was to stop insisting on his perspective and to see God's perspective. To cease looking at his strength and see God's strength. To rely upon Jesus, who said the pure in heart will see God. Now Kierkegaard says purity of heart is to will one will. To will God's will along with him for our lives. Now we live in the wrong time to run to the tomb with Peter and John or to meet him in the garden with Mary or to be with the eleven in the upper room. But we accept him the same way and everyone we minister to will accept him in the same way. With the mind, with the heart, and with the will. Now every individual we encounter will be a blend of those. Some will lead with the heart, some will lead with the intellect, some this struggle with the will has to be done first before they can finally yield to their decision for Christ. But hear what Jesus says to Thomas in verse 30, in verse 29, excuse me. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's the category we're in. A few chapters before in the upper room, Jesus prayed for us. After praying for himself and the disciples in John 17, this is verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, and that's everyone we present the gospel to. Those who do not see with human eyes, but believe. And Jesus says there's great blessing for those, great blessing for us, because we accept this with the eyes of faith. Even though we don't duck into that tomb with John, we see his face. You'll encounter them through years of ministry. You are equipping yourselves now for that ministry. May God bless you as you continue in that task. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you 
that the reality of your truth speaks to us right where we live. You challenge us in the classroom intellectually. You challenge us in worship emotionally. And always, even in the quiet of our prayer room, we wrestle with our will that it might be totally given to you. And so whether we are more like John or Mary or Thomas, you have the answer for us. You have the logical truth of your word. You have the incredible warm encounter with your Holy Spirit. And the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world, and we can conquer that will by your Holy Spirit. Guide us as we not only achieve that in our own hearts and lives, but as you have called us to ministry, may we know that the great privilege of ministry is to share with others who will come to know you as well. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Chaplain.